Good evening, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Darielle Snipes, a reporter producer at Ideastream, and we're here at Goldhorn Brewery for the woohoo <laughs> for the final form of our workforce development series, a conversation on wealth building in minority communities. The racial wealth gap is one of the more pressing economic issues facing cities across the country. Because of a history of slavery and oppression, discrimination, and Jim Crow laws, most African Americans were not afforded the opportunity to build wealth and pass it down to the next generation at the rate of their white counterparts. This history, coupled with the rising income disparities of today, means many people of color are still struggling to realize the American dream. In many cities, including Cleveland, economic development professionals are working with anchor institutions, foundations, and community organizations to develop and to develop and entrepreneur programs and ownership models to reverse the troubling trend and to create jobs that also offer opportunities to build community wealth. We saw some of them today on our tour. Now we will explore others and have an opportunity to talk about that impact. I am joined by Michael T. Jeans, President of Growth Opportunity Partners, Inc., John McMicken, CEO of Evergreen Cooperatives, and Chris Shefton, Director of Real Estate Development at Fomico's Foundation. Please welcome our panel. So, John, I know a lot of people do have questions for you after going to uh, Green City Growers and to the laundry, but we're going to put a pin in that for real fast because I thought that um, it might be important to, while this is a very important topic, to talk about why we need to talk about this topic and the history um, and what brought us here. I did mention, Michael, I did mention some of the things that have happened with Jim Crow and discrimination and, you know, redlining, but can you just give some insight on why, why, why we have to be so intentional today to make sure that we break uh, the, the cycle of poverty and to build wealth in these communities? Thank you for that, Darielle, and thank you to City Club for convening along with the hosts uh, and sponsors for this event. I think it's important for us to recognize that conversations of race have become less of opinion and more uh, fact and data based. Uh, we now have evidence, uh, studies, we have data that supports what many of us believed was true, and many of us lived what was true, and so it's less conjecture now. And it's more about understanding uh, what has occurred, how it's occurred, where we are today, and then how do we get where we need to be. So very quickly, as we talk about wealth, I think it's important uh, that we maybe do some resetting. We often talk about exiting poverty and entering wealth. And there's a lot of space between the two. And so I'd like to begin with that underpinning, that there are multiple steps to getting to wealth. I also would like to uh, maybe clarify for a moment that when we talk about wealth, that's a balance sheet item. But when we're talking about income, that's on the income statement side. And income does not equal wealth. Income is derived from the labor markets. Wealth is and has longstanding been transference of resources over time. And so unless disparities among races is new, wealth has only occurred because of the wealth that was uh, coveted and that was exclusive and then therefore passed on over generations which created wealth. So as we have this conversation, I think it's important that we bifurcate income and wealth. And as we look at strategies for income, they are necessary and needed. And as we look at wealth, they're necessary as well, but they're byproducts of how we manage income and decrease the uh, disparity. And Chris, 
you can also talk to that because uh, with your organization, you deal with wealth when it comes to properties. And a lot of uh, people that you have come encounter are walking away from some income or some wealth because they're, they're, those homes are in neighborhoods that are less desirable right now. So it's, it's, it's interesting, right, when we, when we have this conversation about what is desirable and what's, and what's not. It is also interesting when we, when we have this, the conversation as it applies to race that this is not, um, you know, all black people were slaves and, that, and then, you know, 200 and whatever years later, as a result of said circumstances, this is why we find ourselves here today. When we say systemic oppression, it is systemic. That means that people have, that institutions for many years have been put in place that block people from their opportunities to be able to accrue wealth. So, you know, I always tell people, particularly as it applies to the neighborhoods that we serve, all black people aren't poor. Um, that, um, and what that means is that there is wealth uh, across the city of Cleveland. Uh, including in the homes that people own. Uh, and the reason why a neighborhood like a Glenville or a Huff or a St. Clair Superior are less desirable is because they were systemically put in the place to be less desirable. They were redlined so that um, banks would not make loans to people who lived in these neighborhoods. And so despite the fact that um, Glenville historically was uh, the playground of the wealthy. This is where the folks from Millionaire's Row would come in summer. Um, when black middle class people moved into these neighborhoods and the wealthy Jews who lived there originally left, somehow overnight these, these neighborhoods became less desirable. Even though the black people who purchased at homes were doing so um, with the thought process of building wealth for the future. And so now when we fast forward 50 years into the future, um, and when you want to go and pass down said asset to your children, it is not worth what it should be if it was in Lakewood or Cleveland Heights or some other neighborhood. And so we have to, we have to be balanced in our assessment of, of why people find themselves in, in the situations they're in. Everything is not about pulling yourself up by bootstraps. People have often and for long periods of time strived to be able to find themselves in the system, in the, in the normal system, and to be able to do things the way the majority does and just don't have the same outcomes in the end um, and the same results. And so programs and things that we're doing today are to help to rebuild some of that wealth, to put, um, and to attract people to neighborhoods that are beautiful, um, that have assets that are all over the city of Cleveland and to get people to see them with fresh eyes. Great. And there's certain things um, in certain organizations like Evergreen Cooperative that, that's trying to do that. Um, we did take a tour of, of the laundry and of Green City Growers and everyone, I know in, on bus one, was had a lot of questions and, and I think they enjoyed it. But I mean, can you just talk about how, um, how, how it got started, what more than 10 years ago, um, and why back then the city, the Cleveland Foundation, and other uh, investors felt that it was in, uh, important to do it now and to the point where other cities are, are modeling um, your, what you're doing. Yes, uh, thanks, Darielle, and, and thanks, everybody, for taking some time today to tour a couple of our cooperatives, and hopefully you got a chance to sort of get a feel for the operation and, and, and meet a few of our employees. Unfortunately, uh, 
based on the time of day, a lot of our uh, staff had already gone gone home for the day. But um, um, you know, it, it, we're we're about ten years into uh, uh, what uh, part of an initiative referred to as the Greater University Circle Initiative, and so Evergreen was was really just one part of that overall strategy, loosely based on. <clears throat> Uh, attacking problems associated with hiring locally, living locally, and buying locally. Uh, and so it was the Cleveland Foundation who uh, sort of uh, drafted the idea, and it was uh, our anchor partners at the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, and Case Western Reserve University, along with the city who, uh, who really helped to lift it off the ground and, and, uh, and, and, and get us started. And, and so really, in short, the idea was it's, I think it started as, as, as a job creation initiative in, uh, in, 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 in the neighborhoods where we operate, but quickly evolved into more than that. Um, I think it was pretty clear to, to most folks that were trying to do this hard work that it takes more than, than just a job to make a change. And so uh, that really led us down the path of, um, of structuring these businesses as, as, as worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, the facilities that you visited today are uh, are 80% owned by the employees uh, who work there. Uh, they're sharing in the profits, they're building the equity, uh, they're building their own uh, you know, balance sheet, so to speak, as, as Michael referred to. And uh, I think that was the very unique aspect of, of that work. Um, I love the fact that um, if you look deep into the, the organizational documents of these businesses, um, that business structure is, is a permanent one. Um, it can't change, uh, in other words, 50 years from now, uh, the businesses that you saw today will, will, will uh, hopefully be there. Uh, and if they are there, they will still be 80% owned by, uh, by the employees who work there uh, to really protect the long-term strategy and the more generational uh, wealth gap that we're, that we're trying to, uh, to, uh, to address. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a rocky road, as many people know. Um, uh, things did not start so well for us. It was very difficult. Hopefully, you got an appreciation today for the for the size and scale of these businesses. They're not small, uh, and they weren't um, they weren't inexpensive to to launch. Um, the worker owners um, uh, have debt to service in order to pay the loans back that it took to to build those businesses. But the strategy behind that um, was in in some ways uh, twofold. Um, you know, we wanted these businesses to be very real, commercially viable businesses, uh, uh, not uh, small uh, corner uh, uh, operations. Uh, to really, to really force these businesses to to be self-sustaining, to stand on their own two feet, to learn the skills necessary to not only operate the business but to to, to run the financial side of the business, and and, and so hence the. Uh, you know um, the the size and scale. The other the other reason for that was um, to to have a real impact on wealth building. You know, the bigger the business, again, if it's successful, uh, the more opportunity there is to create that individual wealth faster. And so I think that in in at a high level was uh, was was part of the design behind these these cooperatives. But also. While you have the, the worker owners, you also have programs in, in place to help with buying houses, buying cars. Can you talk a little about those programs that also help them boost um, themselves? Sure, yeah. So I think our, our home ownership program is a, is a very important one. Um, you know, we, we feel that um, uh, secondary to the, to the quality job and the wealth building opportunity is stable housing. And so um, 
Uh, we've worked hard over the last four or five years to develop a program that enables our employees to, uh, to, to, to get into home ownership, uh, which obviously is, is very, very life-changing. And so uh, we're, we're proud of the fact that we've got 21 of our, 21 of our worker owners who, uh, who are uh, uh, now uh, uh, living in a home that they, that they're, that they, that they own, some, some of whom have already uh, paid for that home uh, in full and no longer even have a mortgage on that home. So uh, imagine changing from uh, having to worry about um, when your rent is going to go up again to, uh, to having the stability and, and the pride of, 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 of owning your own home. Um, I, I think that um, the, the financial literacy training programs um, that in many ways we, we have to offer, right, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an owner of a business uh, to, to really, you know, thrive and, and, and behave as an owner, there has to be a fairly firm understanding of, of uh, the financial nuts and bolts. You know, how do we, uh, how are we doing? Um, how profitable or not profitable are we? What do we need to do to make that better? What do we need to do to, to improve that? And so there's a, there's a beyond just job-specific training, um, our, our pretty extensive uh, uh, financial literacy training classes that not all of our worker owners uh, uh, have to participate in, but they're but they're but they're uh, but they're available for those who 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 wish to to uh, you know have a, a deeper role in in running their business. Great, and and Chris, I mean, speaking of home ownership, Flamicos is is doing a wonderful job with you know revitalizing um, certain neighborhoods and strengthening the housing market in those neighborhoods. But also, one thing that I just saw, I saw a story that was talking about how you guys are also helping families renovate some of these homes by giving them, or if they qualify, up to seventeen thousand dollars in renovating these homes so that their house will have the wealth necessary to a possibly sell it if they want or just live in these homes because a lot of these homes as we know are older so I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah. You're good. in Glenville um, one of the challenges is that most of the homes actually all of them for the majority I mean 95% of them were built before 1940 and so that means that you have homes that are 100 years old, um, built at a different time for a different family size, for a different family structure. And so you, what you find is that there are people who've lived in their homes for 50 years, and so now they are 75 years old, and they need to be able to age in place. They need to be able to um, create a first floor bedroom, create first floor, create first floor laundry, re replace soffits, get a new roof. and as I mentioned earlier in terms of redlining, while um, CRA or the Community Reinvestment Act means that banks are now making more loans in disenfranchised, um, disinvested communities of color, that doesn't mean they're like, they're not doing them at the same rates that they would be in other communities. And so um, programs like what's being offered through the Mayor's Neighborhood Transformation Initiative allow people to be able to make these types of investments in their homes. You know, Famico's Foundation is an affordable housing developer, but we also do market rate product. And a lot of times people ask me, well, how can you justify selling a home in the Glenville community for $369,000? Um, as I did today, yay. Um, and I justify it because the people who've lived in the house next door to the house that we just sold, just put their house on the market for $350,000. So that's wealth building. That's actual wealth that is gonna transfer to these people who own their house outright 
who've lived in that home for, three, for 30 years and who otherwise would not have been able to command what their, the true value of their home in any other neighborhood in the city of Cleveland, um, what it would truly be. And so our, um, our thought process, our vision is that this isn't just about putting affordable housing in neighborhoods. This is about creating a community that's affordable for everybody at any price point. This is about helping people to establish and continue to build wealth, which with the, the, the thing most people um, have, which is their home, um, and getting people to see the value in said product and being able to provide them dollars, assistance, technical assistance, to be able to keep that house, um, that historic home to the level and quality that it should be. Great, well congratulations on the house. Thanks. <laughs> and if you hadn't noticed, wealth building takes many, it's many layers. So, you know, it might be about home ownership. It's about uh, owning a business or, be, or being a part of a business that you partly own. But Michael, it's also about, like I just said, owning businesses. And a lot of people want to own businesses in minority neighborhoods, but maybe they're having a difficult time getting a loan, or maybe they need some assistance in your organization, opportunity, uh, growth opportunities, assist people who are who want to do that who want to who need loans so they can start a business which obviously is job creation and then also maybe they need some some advice on how to keep that business going can you explain a little bit about absolutely and thanks uh, for that lead-in so growth ops is dedicated to improving the quality of life for low-income persons uh, we do that in one uh, aspect in um, increasing access to business ownership uh, not necessarily from a startup perspective, but uh, more established companies because there's less risk there and more upside opportunity. Uh, we do a lot of advising, and like uh, most times, the advisory portion of our work exceeds the dollars that we put in market because we don't enter, <clears throat> excuse me, under-resourced communities suggesting that we're going to give them a path of wealth through debt. So if we can advise a company or an individual on how to uh, improve their operating efficiencies in their existing business and find that uh, income in their operations rather than taking on debt, that's a win for us even though we don't make a dime off of it. If there's a way for folks to improve their, uh, uh, their income and trajectory toward wealth that does not include debt, that's where we wanna begin. However, debt can allow individuals and companies to access capital markets uh, in a unique way and so we don't take it off of the table. There, uh, unfortunately, is a, um, an undervaluation of black and brown communities. And so when given an opportunity to live in a community that is primarily African-American or Hispanic, uh, our appraisal process, uh, it was just an article I believe in the journal a couple of weeks ago, shows significant devaluation depending upon the color of the folks who are next door. It's, it's um, irrefutable at this point because there's, there have been so many sales and transactions that capture the demographic analysis that we can't continue to sugarcoat or run from it or even uh, allow ourselves to pull back into a place of uh, optimism because I think we all hoped for more um, uh, from our counterparts. And so while Growth Ops is, is, is maybe uh, on the surface an organization to benefit individuals through uh, entrepreneurship and business ownership, the reality is we're trying to improve the quality of life for low-income persons. We're trying to improve access uh, for folks who have been historically excluded. That's black and brown populations. However, uh, we have majority counterparts, peers, colleagues, who have committed themselves 
to operating a franchise in a low-income community and hiring from that community, I can't discount that value as long as those jobs aren't minimum wage jobs in perpetuity. So uh, I, I think also when we look at, uh, as you were stating, Darielle, and the examples that were given by my colleagues here, uh, we often talk about wealth and the starting point through home ownership, and it, it's important. I, I can't help but underscore that. Uh, but we have to look at the, the quality of those homes and the, what that equity translates to. Because just like every job isn't created equal, every home isn't valued in an equal manner. And, and let's, you know, let's start to quantify wealth. Uh, you think I got paid by the journal, but there was another article this past week <laughs> where there was a survey of uh, what number is it that determines whether one is healthy, oh, I'm sorry, wealthy. And uh, they've even bifurcated it by baby boomers and older and uh, millennials and Gen Xers. And millennials and Gen Xers, interestingly, uh, had a lower number. It was a $2 million number. Uh, but for boomers and above, that number on average was about $3 million in net worth. And so I, I share that in the context of under-resourced communities have been under-resourced and underinvested in for so long that what's an income play looks and feels and smells like a wealth play. So when one has an opportunity to sell an asset or inherit an asset for 100, 200, 300, 500,000 dollars, that's well below the two million I just shared. It's well below the three million for the boomers and older. And just for some quick data points, the 99th percentile, the, the highest earning percentile of black families has, and I'm gonna say mere, but a net worth of $1,574,000 in that, that top percentile. That means over 870, uh, I'm sorry, uh, while the 99th percentile of white families has over 12 million. So that means over 870 white families have a net worth above $12 million, while out of 20 million black families in America, fewer than 380,000 are even worth a single million dollars. So it's, it's important to understand the numbers behind this. It's almost dismissive to suggest only a million or a mere million, but it's relative. If you've only had a dollar, 20 seems like a lot. And when you haven't had an at-bat, when you get to batting practice, it feels like you've won the game. I believe that if we do this right and we do this together, because none of America's strides have occurred exclusively by one group of people, if we do this right and we do this together, uh, then these numbers change. And our access to each other and our access to tools that have worked that are time-tested, that are fundamentally sound, when they're applied writ large, then we can have conversations that are less about how do I survive, or how can communities survive a little bit better. And when we talk about opportunity, and we talk about living, and we talk about wealth, we're actually talking about an environment that is just that. And I don't think we're there yet. It's so interesting. Thank you for that. That was, that's, so that crystallizes in my mind. I sit here as someone who was born in 1980, so I kind of straddle the, the line between being a Gen Xer and a millennial. And, you know, as someone who has worked very hard to educate themselves, what I often have to, when I have conversations with folks um, about um, the state of black America, you know, we often talk about this from the perspective of poverty, but let's talk about this from for middle income black people, like a lot of the people that are in the room with us today. 
if you make $150,000 and you got $300,000 in student loan debt, you have, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you have no wealth. And so I think that when we, so even to, to, to Michael's point about income, this isn't about income. This is about uh, generations of the lack of ability to access to things like student loans, the GI Bill, um, uh, home mortgages in suburban communities and all these different sorts of things that have systematically put black and brown people at the back of the line. And so this is not just about talking about, um, you know, neighborhoods in the inner city of Cleveland. I mean, this is, this is impacting Twinsburg and Macedonia and all of, it's, it's, this is impacting Northeast Ohio. It's impacting the United States of America. And so when we talk about wealth building, this isn't just about um, low income folks. This is about folks across the income spectrum and about building uh, wealth for minority communities that increases our ability to have purchasing power for us to be able to buy vacant buildings and put businesses in them, to do all sorts of things that make the country great. This isn't just about us, right? This is about everybody. We are our brother and sister's keeper. And so, you know, for the folks out there who may or may not be a Trump supporter, who believe that, you know, everybody should work hard, well, I can tell you that for about 400 years, we've been working really hard. We just want to get to the same place that you, you get to be. And, and so, so this is, I feel like there's, when we have these conversations about wealth building, they, there's something about fairness that inevitably comes into the conversation. Well, that's not fair. They get to jump the line. Well, yeah, we've been at the back of the line for about a long time now. And so now we just wanna be in the same place to get to the same places that, that other people have had the opportunity to. So I'm going to throw this out to the group, um, you know, and this might be a, a longer question than the time that we have, but, you know, what's it going to take to change this? And John, I want to start with you because I know that, that Evergreen is really trying to change it, you know, one job at a time with, you know, one worker turning owner, employee, but then you also have a new venture that you guys are doing with the Fund for Employee Ownership where you're now going to start taking or acquiring existing businesses and then flipping them so that they are worker owned. Can you just talk about how and where, like what are the requirements for those businesses that you're trying to acquire and, and what you're gonna be doing with that? Sure, yeah, so we're, we're, we're thrilled to have uh, assembled a, a new fund, as Darielle said, called the Fund for Employee Ownership. Um, that uh, is going to give um, <clears throat> employees of existing companies access to um, access to really good capital in an effort to help them buy their company from uh, from their ownership group and thereby convert it to an employee-owned enterprise. And so the end result of that, we hope, is very similar to what it is we've tried to do here in Cleveland so far by creating these businesses from scratch. Um, but but if it works, and, and we have our work cut out for us, it's a very uh, it's a very new and, and, and different approach. Uh, if it works, um, we we believe that we will have impact <coughs> uh, on our neighborhoods, on our worker owners, uh, f you know, faster, uh, and and quite frankly, um, with less risk. Uh, you know, anytime you anytime you start any business from scratch. Uh, as as uh, many of you know, it's it's difficult. A lot of small businesses uh, a lot of small businesses fail uh, by converting existing businesses uh, to worker-owned cooperatives. 
uh, you're talking about um, companies who have who already have a financial track record, who already are in business, but but whose jobs are at risk because there's an ownership group that wants to exit for some reason. Typically, just retirement. You know, there's um, uh, there's lots of studies indicating that tens of thousands of healthy uh, U.S. companies today uh, are at risk because the the baby boomer ownership group is uh, is ready to you know call it quits and go enjoy the wealth that they've uh, built over the years, and so a lot of times those those really good jobs are are lost. Uh, the the company uh, uh, shutters the doors and, and moves on, or perhaps they sell out to some larger competitor who consolidates the jobs out of town and moves them. So our hope is to be able to come in again with loan dollars, uh, very favorable low interest loan dollars that would enable the existing employees to uh, to purchase that company from that retiring ownership group, convert it to a worker-owned organization, and, and hopefully run it and thrive for many years to come. So again, the end result we think is very similar to what we've tried to do so far. We just hope to be able to scale it a little bit faster, have a little greater impact uh, with, 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 quite frankly, less, less risk. But what are some of the requirements for those businesses that you might acquire? Uh, so, uh, for the most part, um, we're talking about uh, em employees that currently uh, um, are, are low to moderate income uh, employees um, or businesses that are located in low to moderate income neighborhoods. And so, again, our focus is, is, is essentially the same. We want to uh, continue to, um, uh, to implement a place-based strategy. This is, not, this, is not, this is not random in that sense. We want to continue to do the work that we do uh, you know, for the potential employee base that we serve in the neighborhoods where we've, where we've served. Great. And so then, just back to the, the question, I mean, what do you think it's going to take to, to, to turn this around? I know that it's a systemic problem. It's been happening for a long time. But what, you know, throwing it out to the group, whoever wants to answer, but what do you think it's going to take to, to, to make a dent, to try to see it? Is it? Or is it just one employee at a time who pulls their family and buys that house and is able to pass that down once, once they pass? I mean, is it one person at a time, or is it a, is it a neighborhood at a time? You know, I, I think we're inclined to say it's one person at a time because uh, one person matters. And so it's difficult to tell a person who is finally able to to grab opportunity, you know, not just at their fingertips, but full grasp that that doesn't matter and that doesn't have meaning and value. So, so yes, each of those instances is, uh, is important and of value, but I think it's much more than that. I, I think we need to be uh, a bit more fair about uh, who we're asking to fix the problem. And so if you have been on the receiving end uh, of what now data is coming back and telling us is uh, deliberate, uh, has been well-placed and well-positioned and well-guarded, then uh, it's a bit dismissive and disingenuous to then look to the population that's been on the receiving end of that and say, pull yourself out, earn your way out, educate your way out. REI and other data has shown us that uh, has not worked and it doesn't stand up against the, the, the time old test of the systems in place. So what needs to happen? Um, we do need to boil the ocean. We can't let this be presented to us again and again as that thing that's so big, it's like boiling the ocean. Where do you start? We do need to recognize that oceans can boil, but it takes intense heat to do it. I'm a nerd enough to know that I actually looked it up and it's some ridiculous number, 700. <laughs> 
not really humanly possible for us to then live afterwards. But, but the, the point is that we have to recognize it is big, it is vast, it has depth, and so we have to approach it as such. The exercise can't be an exercise of parody, so we can't create pursuits to just try to get where people once were. If there have been generations of exclusion, once we reach that goal, that group is still behind. And so let's be honest about the level of intentionality and how aggressive these pursuits and these structures and these solutions must be just to get at parity. We need to create equitable value among people. We can't continue to discount people based on their race and then carve them out into certain portions of our cities or our states or our countries, whether they're Native American or they're African American or they're Latinos. We have to value each other as Americans. We talk about American people, but we don't value each other like Americans. We need to create an opportunity. <laughs> we need to create an opportunity for investment in assets that appreciate. And so we talk about baby boomers who have grown businesses that have some value, and those businesses do need to transfer, and there are some valuable businesses inside of, of that group. Uh, I think the number is something like $10 trillion in baby boomer-owned uh, assets within businesses that are transferring over the next 18 years. And the children of those boomers don't necessarily have interest to buy those companies. So who will buy them? That's the first question. I raised that question a couple of years ago. I've got a different question now, maybe a, a, a clause A to that, which is we have to be cautious not to buy yesterday's dreams. So what grew into wealth for a baby boomer who started a business in maybe the pick your year decades ago, is that the horse that you and I and others can ride to prosperity over the next 50 years? Perhaps, but likely not. Is there a reason the children don't want the business? Have they seen more than we've seen? So the ability to invest in appreciating assets, sometimes when you're excluded again, you feel so happy to be at the table to buy, and it's maybe not the right opportunity, even though it's real estate, even though it's a house, even though it has a comma in its value. So the, 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 the unencumbered and unabated ability to invest in appreciating assets, uh, and the ability to secure those assets. My grandfather was the hardest man, the hardest working man I ever knew. He worked in a steel mill and he worked swing shifts, and. He had an opportunity to become foreman, and obviously he didn't get that because someone who didn't look like him got it, but he had another opportunity, and I think around the fourth or fifth time as a senior citizen, he got it. Uh, he left assets for my grandmother so that she could live and live comfortably. But along the way, my grandfather couldn't buy the house that he wanted to buy, and he couldn't secure it with insurance. And so my point here is if it takes all that you have to get it, imagine the cost of losing it because you can't secure it. So the ability to unilaterally secure and access the same tools that others can access, that capital markets can access, so that when one works hard, one can keep. And when that happens over time, there's a generational transfer of wealth that we're talking about. If there's anything to my, to my preamble with wealth being a, a generational event, then we have to be able to secure what's grown. Those are the things that we have to get better at. And, and maybe I'll, I'll round this out with, when I look at this audience, I see black women, I see white women, I see white men, I see black men, and I see some folks who I maybe don't know your ethnicity or nationality. <laughs> and that's beautiful, and that's okay. If we're gonna tackle race, if we're going to eradicate race as being the top one or two or three things that, 
are in our way from being the place and the people and the country we can be, then we can't still be uncomfortable when someone looks at me and calls me a black man. And I can't feel discounted or slighted. We have to, we have to be comfortable with the basics of how we even got to this conversation. If there's discomfort there, then we've got some work to do. There shouldn't be discomfort and perpetuity in this conversation. It's uncomfortable because of how we have dealt with it and perhaps how we haven't. Let's get comfortable in the dialogue. Let's look at each other and know who we are. And if you call me a black man because that's the color of my skin and that's my race or my ethnicity, I'm great with that. But if you're calling me that with another name in mind behind it, that's a different conversation, right? If we get comfortable with this, then we can tackle this other stuff. The rest of this we all want. We want good for our families. We want, we want health and wealth for our families and our loved ones. We want to see some value increase and opportunity and access and our kids accomplish their dreams. We want all the same stuff, but we've allowed this to exist for far too long. Well, thank you. And I would like to thank our panelists. Michael Jeans, President of Growth Opportunities Partners, John McMicken, CEO of Evergreen Cooperatives, and Chris Shefton, Director of Real Estate Development at Fomico's Foundation. Now, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone. And if you're following us on Twitter or Facebook Live video, you can tweet your question to at the City Club. That's at the City Club. And we'll try to work it in. Stephanie Jansky has the microphone, and she will continue to hold the, the, the microphone as we get the first question. Thank you very much. I'm wondering if there is another aspect that might be missing from this conversation, and that would be uh, community-owned banks. I have recently seen the PBS special called Boss that looked at black entrepreneurship, and neighborhood people were, were starting banks that helped the neighborhood. And I'm wondering if that's something that we should be thinking about. So that's a great question. Um, there are um, black-owned uh, banks across the United States of America. Um, many of them started in the black churches. Um, there are three that I know of in Cleveland, one of which is in Glenville. There's another one in the Union Miles neighborhood. Um, so, so they exist. Um, what I would suggest though, and um, it actually is what I was thinking about as, as Michael was speaking earlier, is that uh, as we have this conversation, it sounds so depressing, right? Like, but I have to let you know that like, um, there are fantastic things happening in the black and brown community. That uh, there are black owned banks, um, there are black owned wealth investment firms. They're not as great and as powerful as we would like them to be, um, but they do exist. There are folks that are very focused on these issues today, but they're also historically these institutions have existed. Um, a man's name who I can't say enough is a man by the name of Winston Willis. Winston Willis um, was a black man, uh, dropped out of school at 12 from the city of Detroit, came to the city of Cleveland. He, at his height, owned, I don't know, let's say 25 properties along Euclid Avenue. At his height, he employed 400 people, all of color. Um, in the Glenville, Huff, and University Circle neighborhoods. Now, we won't get into how he lost his property, 
because that's a little controversial, but we will, what we will say is that this wealth has existed in our communities for a very long time. There are um, cities that we can uh, point to across the United States. There is a, a town in Oklahoma called Black Wall Street where these things existed. So this is about not just establishing, but to Michael's point, being able to keep, <laughs> being able to ensure, being able to ensure that they continue into perpetuity and that, and for people not to be threatened when you say black owned bank, right? Like, I know it's black owned, but it's still a bank. Like you can still put your money there and just because it's black owned doesn't mean that white people can't invest their dollars there. And so we have to remove this sort of stigma that we put on black and brown businesses that only black and brown people can support them, only black and brown people can go to them. It's a business. Um, it just happens to be owned by black or brown people. And so we, so it, it, people need to get comfortable, to Michael's point, with this concept of race and being able to understand that black and brown dollars are green and they spend the same way white dollars do um, and they can be invested in the same way. Um, this is old statistics, but like at one point they did an analysis and they said if you put all the black people and their wealth together, it would be the 10th wealthiest nation in the world. And so imagine that there are plenty of businesses that are missing out on the ability to be able to attract these dollars, including banks, um, because um, the lack of understanding of what, what truly black and brown dollars mean to a community. And so I think this is, a, this is about removing the stigmas and about um, elevating those conversations so that people can understand that those institutions already exist. There is a, um, so ownership in banks is interesting. Yeah. And, and it's a big, it can be a bit complex. I think there's value to community institutions because the communities buy into their own institutions in a different way. Uh, how we slice community can be a tremendous headwind for a community bank because size is everything in banking. So a community bank, let's say across the street, that would have limited deposits and assets, uh, would have lower lending limits, a lower ability to participate in sizable projects that you'd want to have in your community, which means you've got a bank that doesn't have the voice it needs to affect the change it wants to have. But it doesn't mean there's no role for community banks. Uh, my, the industry that my organization is a part of is community development financial institutions. We're a community financial institution. There are about 1,200 across the country that are attempting to solve for many of the things we discussed today, from Native American challenges, African Americans, low-income persons, housing, business, um, and a myriad of others, uh, born out of the 60s, uh, 67, I want to say. And so there are folks who are tackling this. I, I think the other thing I might add to the, the, the comment, uh, which is uh, well-placed, uh, is let's not let the institutions who've harvested the returns and the equity uh, from the sweat of so many, let's not let them off the hook. There's a certain responsibility uh, that we all bear, but certainly I think these institutions uh, do as well. And, and so what I would not want to see is community uh, 
institutions, community banks of that smaller nature being forced to take on risk uh, that the other markets should be taking on, that, that that would create a short life cycle for those community institutions. But there's value to that. Thank you. Thank you very much for talking to us about this very interesting subject. When we were at the Evergreen Laundry today, I asked the question of the gentleman who was talking to us what the highest salary was that uh, the highest paid worker was paid. And he said it was $17 an hour. Now, that's a low salary, and that's the highest salary that was available. How can someone like that afford then to buy a house and to maintain the house that you are saying you're trying to make available to these people? Thanks. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, there, 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 are certainly, there are certainly individuals at the operation whose salaries are high, members of management at the organization whose salaries are higher than that, but the, the wages don't include the profit sharing that happens on an annual basis. And in, as far as the home buying program goes, we really, uh, as part of the home ownership uh, financial training uh, program, the last thing we would ever do is get somebody into a home ownership situation that they really couldn't afford or keep up with. And so there are some very, we're talking about financing that involves 0% interest loans, um, property tax forgiveness for the first five years, and, uh, and, and mortgage payments that are uh, uh, payroll deducted so that those mortgage payments are made uh, um, you know, on the first of the month on time every month. So there are a number of employees who come through the home ownership training who s simply aren't ready yet uh, because, of their, because of their wage uh, uh, limitations to, to own that home. Uh, and that's fine. We work with them over the years to get them to the point where they are ready. But um, um, I don't know if we've had one, um, uh, I don't think we've had one uh, you know, bad uh, home uh, ownership uh, transaction so far. And, and again, because the program was started uh, a little over five years ago, uh, many of them have already, uh, you know, paid that home off uh, outright with those wages that we're talking about. One of the best parts of uh, living in Cleveland is that our cost of living is extremely cheap in comparison to cities across the country. And so the fact that uh, Evergreen provides these sorts of um, programs to allow their employees to be able to purchase homes solves for two problems. Obviously, it provides a home for an employee, but it also uh, helps to take potentially vacant homes off the market that may have a very low value, and it helps to reestablish value in that community. So just as a quick example, we have a, what we call an afford-a-home program, which allows for people to purchase a homes that at their height might be $35,000. So do that math, it's somewhere around $300 a month for a mortgage payment, which I want. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, they're not setting people up to fail. I think that for all three of the organizations that are up here, what we can say with full confidence is that what we're attempting to do is provide systemic approaches. So that's full wraparound services. So I'm not just, gonna allow you to buy a house and not give you financial coaching. All of these things are gonna go together. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. My name is Jonathan Welly. I work at Cleveland Owns, which is a, a new nonprofit that believes that the only way to build an equitable city is to have an equitable distribution of ownership. So I really appreciate the topic today. Um, and Chris, I really like what you said, that there is a lot of wealth in Cleveland, right? We live in a wealthy city. The question is, how is that wealth distributed? Where is it and who has it? And I have a question about the role of the, the public sector, which is, um, you know, we live in a city, in, in a region where the public sector has played a role in determining who has that wealth, right? And we, we currently live in a city that's still doing that. So in Bedford, there are nuisance laws that make it essentially a crime to live in that city if you're black, and they were recently sued for some of those nuisance laws. In the city of Cleveland, we know that the city of Cleveland is directly subsidizing some of the wealthiest developers in this town through 15-year tax abatement, through tax expenditures, and through cash. So the question for the panel is, particularly on the side of ownership as a path to economic prosperity and wealth building in black communities and communities of color and poor communities, what would you like to see the public sector do to not only do less harm, but actually do some good? Not a whole lot of leaning in on this one. <laughs> when things are in place for a long time, uh, they start to take a rhythm of their own. And, and over time, it, you know, upon inspection, looks like that's how it was supposed to be. And that's when public sector and policies need to step in. When we talk about investing in assets that appreciate, one of the greatest barriers is the appraisal process. That's one of the greatest barriers. This maybe is a few years of data, maybe it started five years ago and has continued forward, but we are seeing now uh, senior citizens selling homes for what they purchased their homes for mm. 50 years ago. That means they had some path to wealth, but that wealth evaporated. They, they paid for these homes many times over. We don't have to look far, we can see that uh, just around the corner here, we can certainly see that in East Cleveland. These families have accessed, but policy has not allowed them to participate. To your question, uh, how is wealth being distributed? It's being distributed by being born into a wealthy, privileged family. That's how it's being distributed. How is income being distributed? It's being able to participate on some escalator uh, of job opportunity, but wealth is not being distributed uh, in, in a manner that it should be. And, and I've, I've been honest about myself, and I have some colleagues in this room who I went to high school with, uh, I have not had, and then I had, and I like to say the story ended there, but then I didn't have again, <laughs> then I had, and so what did I find? I, I found that, um, you know, those rooms of having didn't look a whole lot like me. Um, and so that is then, you know, kind of the, the evidence of the antidote that there's not really a transference that's happening here. So what then could happen for, for that to occur? We talk about redeveloping communities and gentrification. What happens is folks have invested East Cleveland or wherever we want to use as an example, and then someone decides, hey, let's redevelop this community and let's call it something else. And then uh, let's look at what the property value should be. And so we see an appreciation of value and some people get pushed out. Okay, we know the story of gentrification, but 
Last I checked, the investors who are the early investors typically have some say in the terms, and they typically benefit from said terms. And so I view the folks who bought these homes 30, 40, 50 years ago as early investors. Why don't they get to exit at the entry point That's right. of other folks? If you want to talk about policy changes from the public sector, allow folks who've lived in those communities to sell their properties at today's par, not at a discount with a promise of some turn. That's something that can begin to slow the evaporation of wealth that's been invested in these homes over the years. That's something that creates equity. That same instrument, that same vehicle, that home, is somehow only worth to the person who's lived in it for 30, 40, or 50 years, $30,000, but worth to someone else the next day, 350 or the next month. There's some, there's some policy changes we could make on the public side that would make uh, this conversation of equity actually equity actually present itself. Let's, let's, I want to keep this conversation as positive as we possibly can have it be, right? So let's, let's give the city of Cleveland all the kudos for things like tax abatement. Because let's be clear, the city of Akron, the city of Willoughby, and municipalities, all the city of Shaker, are, are coming to the city of Cleveland, looking at our public policy, copying it, and implementing it. So if these were ter terrible policies, these other cities would not be doing these things. So we do a lot right in the city of Cleveland. It's about who actually gets access to these things and who benefits from them, right? Which is, to me, a different conversation. To Michael's point, um, what I would love to see the city do is um, promotion. Promotion of Glenville and Huff and uh, St. Clair Superior and Fairfax and have conversations with uh, certain news organizations about how they portray these neighborhoods. Because when we talk about investment, the reason why my house in Glenville isn't worth what I, is worth the same today as what I paid for 50 years ago is because no one else sees value in it. When I tell my kids, leave, Get out of here. This is a terrible neighborhood. This is a terrible place. Quite frankly, leave Cleveland because it's a terrible place. That is why our, our city doesn't have value. And now all of a sudden, we are super excited about living in Cleveland again, but we didn't tell the black people. <laughs> we, we didn't tell them. So it's cool for our the majority counterparts to come back to the city and live here, but the we, I literally was just having this conversation with a girlfriend just before this conversation started. To have conversations with my black friends, my educated friends, and tell them, move to Glenville. And they look at me like I got an eyeball in the middle of my forehead. Why would I do that? Well, that's where your property's gonna accumulate value. It's gonna accumulate more value in Glenville than it is in Solon, than it is in Twinsburg, than it is in Macedonia. Now, that's, those are controversial statements to make, but it's the truth. And so we have to be able to promote our neighborhoods and the places we live as successful places and not just places where people get shot so that people want to move back into these communities and reinvest so that the, their grandmother's house, as opposed to selling it the first chance they get, they hang on to it and they keep it and they invest in it so that they can actually see a return. Um. Well, to answer this lady's question, actually, uh, John Bustamante in 1974 opened a community bank out of Shaker, First National Bank. 
Um, he grew it to be one of the largest banks in the country. Cleveland is a great city. I grew up here. Uh, I've been away as long as I was here. So I come with a different perspective, and I'm listening to the conversation here, and I'm intrigued, and I'm, and I'm definitely wanting to be a part of the group. Um, I think there are a couple of things that I'd like to, to discuss. The structure of businesses, Michael. I think one within a business itself, the disparity of income exists because the model is broken. Um, going to some of these companies and just stressing the difference in the model from bottom to top needs to be approached. Um, next, you know, with, we went over to your, your business. I was very intrigued with that. I think scaling that is clearly the next step and, and strategic partners. I've done a lot of stuff with Nestle's and I know that they invest and potentially would even build another uh, uh, location as a, as a partnership and then employ you know, other people. And then I've been talking a little bit around here for all those investors in community, I mean, especially to you, my dear. Um, visit East Lake Country Club uh, or East Lake Development in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. They did what Cleveland needs to do. The model is there. You know, <laughs> all this is nothing new. We're not going to reinvent anything that's not either done or existed, but we need to do some stuff. You know, so, so my question would be, um, you know, with that involvement, what, what, what are we really going to move tomorrow as opposed to talking about this tonight? What are the next steps and directions that you're really, as a panel, looking for us to take? Glenville is a purpose-built community, just as an FYI. <laughs> no, no, but we are working with, there. we are working right now with purpose-built communities to, we absolutely are working, like, again, sir, I appreciate, I'm just saying. We are working right now with Purpose Built. We are, actually, Cleveland is the model in the country for public-private partnerships. So we are building right now to, to get to the place where Eastlake is. I would often even challenge Eastlake and think about the model a little bit differently because they built an island and we're trying to rebuild a city. So just. I, I I think um, I think Cle I, I think there's value in uh, being from Cleveland and visiting other places, and I think many of us get to travel and visit other cities. I get to I just came back from Memphis to try to help a community solve some of their long-standing challenges, but I get to go to Minneapolis and see how maybe they've tackled a few of theirs and and their different approaches. But I will say that Cleveland will not be the best Cleveland if we try to be someone else. Amen. There's value in Cleveland, there's value in the people who have been here, and there's value in those who'd like to be a part of uh, the spirit of Cleveland. Uh, but we're not at our best if we uh, try to be another Silicon Valley with our entrepreneurship uh, or any other place uh, in the world. Cleveland was uh, and Cleveland is, and let's make the most of that. Well, I want to say that this conversation could go on all night, but it can't, I'm sorry. But this is obviously a very good conversation and I would like to thank Michael Jeans, President of Growth Opportunities Partners, Inc., John McMicken, CEO of Evergreen Cooperatives, and Chris Shefton, Director of Real Estate Development at Famicas Foundation for this very great topic and, and discussion here tonight. Thank you so much for coming out tonight.
Our forum today is part of a workforce development series presented by PNC with additional support from the Cleveland Foundation and the Deaconess Foundation. Thank you for your support of the City Club programming. I'm Darielle Snipes, reporter producer for IdeaStream, and thank you for joining us tonight. Our discussion is adjourned. <laughs>